This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Jason Breifel. Today is a really exciting show. I'm joined by three historians here in the studio, and we're going to be recognizing uh, President's Day, which was just this last weekend. Uh, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Gautam Rao, um, Associate Professor of History at American University, uh, Dr. Dana Stefanelli, Assistant Editor of the Papers of George Washington at the Washington Library in Mount Vernon, a.k.a. the Washington Presidential Library, uh, and Zach Klitzman, the Senior Executive Assistant at President Lincoln's Cottage here in Washington, D.C. Uh, thank you all for joining us here in the studio this morning. Uh, before we dive in, I want to remind our listeners that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. Uh, Gautam, Zach, Dana, uh, welcome and uh, uh, happy to have you here on Fed Talk this morning. Morning. Thank you. Um, well, well, let's just dive in here. You guys have a really interesting array of uh, experience and perspective studying. Uh, what we'll be looking at today is, is the period of the Founding Fathers, diving in specifically into uh, George Washington and, and, and bridging out to, to President Lincoln. So looking at, at kind of the founding period in the first 100 years or so in, in the nation's official history. And so uh, I'd, I'd like to just kind of dive in here and we can maybe go down the line and um, – uh, how, how did the role of, of the founders, several of whom became presidents themselves, kind of kind of shape shape our history and, and the role of the presidency itself? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Gotham. Sure. Uh, good morning. Um, I think one of the more compelling aspects of the story here is uh, just how much work had to be done uh, to build the presidency. Uh, things were in such uh, disarray uh, during the revolution, uh, during the war, and in the aftermath of the war. Um, the Articles of Confederation, which precede the Constitution, are notorious for uh, a lack of uh, central power. So things are just kind of uh, out of whack uh, from a governmental perspective. And so one reason why uh, we see the presidency as an institution uh, become so so important in uh, these founding era um, struggles is because of the need to have uh, an executive uh, power that is uh, going to be responsible for things like finance uh, if, and, and uh, military affairs. So to me, that's, that's probably the most compelling um, aspect of the story. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, it perhaps wasn't clear that an executive would be necessary, uh, right, during the, the revolution, um, the Continental Congress, uh, move toward having uh, people or small committees uh, that carried out executive functions. Um, you know, when the Confederation, uh, Articles of Confederation were approved, uh, and as the Confederation government operated, uh, those became more formalized. You had, a, you know, a, a, a secretary for war, and, and so, you know, parts of Congress with executive functions, but it was really that experience of the revolution and the confederation years like uh, Gautam alluded to that, that made it clear that uh, a, a stronger, more formal executive power was needed. Uh, and so when it came to the, the constitutional convention, and of course we can get into some big theoretical questions uh, about divided government and, and separate branches, but uh, it, it was clear to, to everyone that some sort of you know, permanent executive – uh, 
uh, power was required uh, for the government to function properly, uh, exactly what that that power would be uh, was not really all that well defined until the end of the, the Constitutional Convention. And much of it, uh, as we know now, was sort of left up to uh, the precedents and experiences uh, and decisions of the first president uh, to define the role uh, or to flesh out exactly what a president would be, uh, what, it, what the executive branch would be going forward. Uh, so, you know, that, that is one of Washington's great contributions that most historians recognize is that, that role that he played in, in putting the flesh on the bones uh, of the, the, those early years in the constitutional process. I, I think it's worthwhile mentioning also that while this was a, a, an apparent need for this power, that there's, there's also great anxiety about it, right, because of the, re the revolutionary experience and uh, Americans were not so fond of the king towards the end of uh, of the British period, so that's the constraint that that's going to be uh, so evident at the Constitutional Convention and even well after this uh, notorious uh, American distrust of uh, centralized authority within uh, a single person or even even the federal government. We could talk about it that way. So that has its roots uh, in as part of the same story. Yeah, what was probably invaluable there is 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 you know. That sounds like a broken record, but I guess we are talking about Washington and his presidency. Um, was Washington was the man in question who had given up power once at the end of the revolution, and so that precedent uh, was was really made an impression on people's minds uh, uh, that that perhaps that probably this was someone who could be trusted with this power that there was so much anxiety about um, uh, to give you know to hand someone executive power knowing that that person would not uh, be tempted to keep it uh, because he had proven once that he would give it up. So, um, you know, in that sense, that action, having fought the revolution, won it, uh, become, you know, perhaps the most famous person in the world at that time, and then given that power up uh, was, was uh, something remarkable to the minds of people uh, in that era when, when there were a few democracies a uh, few few people willing to give up the power that they had acquired. Uh, this guy, George Washington, did that. And so, uh, if you're going to have someone uh, with this uh, executive power, this, you know, and all the the negative consequences that can come from it, then this is probably the guy you want to have. And, and even jumping ahead a little bit, he, you could almost say he gave it up again when he left after his second term. You know, the Constitution certainly didn't prescribe two term limits back then. And it really was a huge precedent that you know, lasted until Roosevelt to really give up after two terms, or not give up, but relinquish the, the presidency and, and the power that came with it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I think, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> giving it up twice, I think it was even uh, King George III thought this was so remarkable that uh, that he he called uh, George Washington the greatest man of, of, of this age. So, uh, you know, it uh, gives you a sense of... of you know, sort of a level of disbelief that people had that this actually happened, that somebody was willing to do that twice. He's also very wary of uh, of fusing his military background into the presidency, although he is commander-in-chief, uh, this fear of, of uh, putting the military power within the executive seat, I think, is, is uh, another precedent uh, we could list uh, alongside the term limit. You know, I think what's most interesting about this conversation is, you know, c Congress did grapple with many of these things. American history is is all about the tension between power and authority. Who should have it? Where should it reside? How do you break it up to provide balance uh, to protect citizens uh, against tyranny? Ultimately, um, but what I'm hearing from you all is that a lot of this really was based on you know the guy who cast the mold, our first president. Um, and so not as much as policy or laws, it's, it's kind of the norms of, of the office kind of built in additional kind of maybe they're more cultural guide rails. Um, and I think that's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. I mean, even, even discussions that, and you know, ju jump in here, but how he was referred to, um, kind of the dress of the Congress, both the physical dress and, and also just how you kind of, you know, defer to someone like Washington? Do you bow 
those kind of debates over kind of the cultural, you know, atmosphere of the president. How does he get treated? Is he, you know, a peer among equals, or is he more elevated in that sense, in that balance of powers? Yeah, his own dress, right? Yeah. The way people dress to receive him and the way he dressed to receive people, things like that. Those were important considerations uh, in a monarchy, and, and so they would probably be important considerations in the new republic. It was a very fine line to walk because on the one hand, he uh, couldn't replicate exactly the regal atmosphere of a king. But on the other hand, this new federal government, nobody quite knew what it was, but it needed some sort of legitimacy. So it had to have uh, some level of, of respect attached to it. And so uh, his ability to entertain guests uh, in, in uh, the home and uh, conduct affairs of state in a way that was uh, viewed by pretty much everyone as, uh, as above board, as uh, uh, beyond reproach, I think was really, really important uh, to the cultural politics of the institution. Great. You know, I want to pick up on this thread and, and talk a little bit more about Washington, but also um, something you mentioned, Dana, kind of uh, we needed a place for, for, for the federal city and then kind of placing, placing some of this power. And, and maybe that was part of the bounds of creating legitimacy around the, the government. And, and, and as we are now here broadcasting from, from Washington, D.C., I think it'll be interesting for our uh, listeners to, to, to take a little trip down how, how we got here and, and, and why this city uh, exists as it does. Uh, we're going to take our first break. We're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 a.m. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Um, joined here today by three uh, historians discussing the uh, the early presidents and, and uh, in our President's Day uh, theme show. I want to pick back up where we had uh, left off, um, talking about uh, the role of, of, of George Washington specifically in, in forming the norms uh, around the, the presidency um, and also bringing kind of legitimacy to this new office and to the new federal government that was formed um, following uh, the end of the Revolutionary War. Um, Dana, do you want to kick us off? Um, yeah, you know, I think a lot of the, the issues that confronted George Washington at the beginning of the presidency uh, were, were the issues that uh, had lingered for years that the Confederation government could not solve uh, or could not resolve, could not uh, debate and pass legislation on to everyone's satisfaction. And then so... For Washington in his first term, in those, the, the first Congress, and those first two years of his first term, a lot of what uh, they did, Congress did, and what he did uh, was to uh, resolve, debate and resolve some of those questions that remained outstanding. Uh, so the Constitution had set up a framework for, for this debate and for resolving things. I mean, that was part of the, the sense of things was the, that the Articles of Confederation uh, didn't really have the mechanisms necessary to actually implement policy. Uh, and so now you have a government, presumably, that does, right, a government under the new, the new Constitution. But you actually have to go and do those things that the Confederation government was not doing. Uh, so you've got some big, some big questions out there, right? There's the money question, uh, you know, the financial issues that, uh, that Gautham alluded to uh, early on. Um, there's... Uh, uh, you know, questions about representation. There's a federal judiciary to essentially create from scratch. Uh, there's the debts outstanding from the revolution and how to finance those debts, so the public finance question. Uh, there's the seat of government question, where the uh, where will Congress meet? We call it a capital nowadays, but they pretty much exclusively 
referred to it as, as the seat of government um, back then. Uh, so th those were all major issues that, uh, that were left outstanding uh, when Washington took office. And so, uh, you know, his, his task, Congress's task, was, was to find, find a way forward after years of, of fits, and, fits and starts and stops and things like that. On the seat of government uh, question, I think that that was particularly poignant in the 1780s because of the the jealousies that had really marred uh, the uh, period under the Articles of Confederation, where uh, states, uh, even cities, were incredibly jealous of each other. Uh, this is again an enduring American tradition. You can ask New Yorkers what they think of Boston or Philadelphians what they think of the rest of the country, um, but. Uh, uh, resolving this problem meant uh, that the, if there was going to be a federal government that was independent, uh, its own sovereign entity, that it had to be in a sovereign place, essentially, uh, that was not going to be controlled by one of the big uh, urban centers uh, and states. So uh, it, the capital makes its uh, appearance briefly in, in New York and Philly and um, – those are, of course, controlled by – those are two of the largest states, two of the most powerful uh, as well. So uh, that was not going to suit as a long-term problem. It's in the Constitution that this national uh, federal city would have to exist in its own place. And so uh, Washington is the driving force in, in placing it uh, where it ends up. And one interesting kind of uh, precedent for creating this independent um, city is uh, – I believe 1783, there was a mutiny of – soldiers who surrounded Congress in Philadelphia, or not necessarily a mutiny, it's called the Philadelphia Mutiny, but these veterans demanding pay for their um, service in the war, and Congress wasn't really doing anything with it, and they called upon the governor of Pennsylvania to put down the you know, the protesters, and he said, nothing doing. And so this kind of set the precedent in their mind, the framers, that we need a jurisdiction that is under control of Congress so that we can say, you know, call up the, you know, um, the militia to put down any such insurrection or, or, or something like that. That's why, as Gotham said in Article 1, Section 8, there's this clause about the exclusive jurisdiction of Congress will control the city. And, of course, everyone here in D.C. knows that's led to, you know, several hundred years of discussions over home rule uh, in the district. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, the, the, the federal city uh, or the seat of government issue goes back even be before uh, – you know the the revolution or dates from the revolution, in the sense that um, you know related to the monarchy uh, question, uh, you you had you know in London you had this this place uh, from which uh, the American colonies were ruled and from which Americans received a lot of great benefits, uh, but uh, you know it was London that was imposing these policies. You know London in, in sort of a uh, a theoretical sense, right? Mm -hmm. So it's par the parliament in London uh, and the king uh, in instituting these policies on the people of America that they don't like. And so in, in a sense, this was also a rebellion against that seat of government, that uh, metropolitan center. And so you've, you've got this angst uh, in, the, in a similar way to the angst over a, a king, um, an executive power. Uh, what, what is the new seat of government going to be? Uh, and, uh, and, you know, should it be a, a powerful thing or, you know, should it be a weak thing? And there were certainly uh, politicians and people who thought, you know, it, it should be irrelevant. <laughs> like, we do not want to go back to what we did with London. Uh, but, you know, there were other people uh, as part of the contest between cities uh, and between jurisdictions uh, and places who thought, uh, no, I mean, we, we got a lot of benefits from London. We need to do something like that again, and I want it to be in my backyard. And so that that was set up that sort of enduring competition that went on for years about where uh, where the, the city should be and what kind of uh, seat of government, what sort of capital it should be. And then we ultimately decided to pick a somewhat random swampy land along a river. It was not a swamp, I, uh, I must point out. Uh, I think I will spend my life dispelling the swamp myth, I, though I am certainly not the first person to try. Uh, there, have been many, there have been many historians before me now uh, who have emphasized that this it was not a swampy location at all. 
Uh, there, there were a few swampy areas, <laughs> and and there were places that you know were under the river essentially from from what we are now. They were reclaimed from the river, but you know Capitol Hill was on a hill. <laughs> uh, you know the elevation was actually quite high. Uh, most of the city is built on higher ground than than Philadelphia or New York. Um, so. Uh, yeah, there was some drainage issues in some places of the city, but but it really wasn't uh, really wasn't a swamp. Uh, you know, George Washington knew the area well. He knew the problems that confronted founding a federal city uh, in terms of the controversy and competition for it. And he was not he would not have been anxious to place it in a location where construction would have been difficult. Uh, so th- there's just many many things about. The swamp story that are illogical. Uh, the explanation for the swamp, and I'll, I'll, I guess I'll digress a little bit here into the 19th century, is that it did become swampy in in, in many places because of of a reluctance to build sewers and uh, just sort of 19th century urban habits, which were to uh, dump your garbage and your feces and and things like that, just kind of wherever they wherever you wanted to put them. Uh, and and to sort of develop the land without a sense of the environmental impact uh, that we have today. Uh, and so by the 1830s and 40s, the, the swamp story becomes more credible. Uh, but to start off with, it, it really wasn't. <laughs> so I feel like I've, I've totally hijacked and digressed into something you really didn't <laughs> well, it's intend okay. to. But, know, diplomats but... got hazard pay here for a long time, <laughs> at least until the 1900s, because of some of these practices. Um <laughs> But that's okay. We're allowed to digress. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, what? So we built the city. We we started organizing the government here. We we brought it together. We, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is, well, I guess was was the city still under construction when when Washington's term ended? Because my recollection is he did his final address in New York. Yeah, I mean, let's keep in mind when we talk about the city in the 1790s, we're talking about mostly uh, some farmhouses and uh, buildings constructed for the workers who were building the federal buildings to live in. So really, it's just a few federal buildings we're talking about at the end of Washington's term that were all under construction. Uh, None of them were really finished. Uh, Those who have seen HBO's John Adams, I think it's it's a fair representation of what John Adams found uh, when he came into the city, which was an incomplete White House, uh, an incomplete uh, one incomplete one third of of the Capitol building, uh, and some um, uh, some buildings for the executive branch that later burned, uh, or that burned soon after they were constructed. Uh, so a Treasury and a War Building, Department of Treasury, Department of War Building that that, that did not survive uh, a fire. I want to pick that up because I think in the second half of our program we're gonna get a little beyond Washington and into some of those other early those other early presidents and then bridging toward um, President Lincoln who who first showed up in the city in the 1830s and in, in, in Congress and then and then back later in his career um, you know because we had mentioned some of these unresolved issues these perennial American issues that we have grappled with and continue to grapple with. Um, and so we'll dive all back into that after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Rate, Federal News Network. Your insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit LTCFE. FEDS.com today. That's LTCFEDS.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up to date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Uh, we're having our President's Day discussion, and I'm joined in this studio by three historians, Dr. Gautam Rao from American University, Zach Klitzman from the President Lincoln's College, 
and Dr. Dana Stefanelli from the Papers of George Washington at the Washington Library at Mount Vernon. Um, we've talked about the, the founding of, of the federal city, uh, Washington's presidency in, in specific, but, but wanted to, in the second half of our program here, uh, kind of move beyond uh, the, the um, President Washington and into some of the early presidents and then, and then bridging into um, uh, President Lincoln's tenure, so, so kind of looking at the first hundred years of, of, of the nation as, as it existed in the United States of America. And uh, we, there, are, there are all these unresolved issues and questions about presidential power, um, and some of these also spilled into kind of the formation of, of political parties and some of the dynamics that we saw around other um, leaders. Um, you know, we talked about whether we should have a central bank uh, or not, and and those were some some serious disputes between between some of our early presidents, and and I think that, you know, as I understand it, some of those uh, debates also kind of, because they never got resolved, helped inform kind of the circumstances of of the the, the Civil War that that came, you know, basically eighty years uh, after after the founding of the country, um, so so we've. So, so where do we pick up after we, you know, President Washington leaves? We're starting to build uh, the city here in Washington D.C. The government is is getting its feet underneath of it, but but we're still um, constructing these offices and 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 building the government. I think actually we have to rewind a little bit to to the Washington administration itself, uh, where uh, you know Washington. Part of the the genius of his presidency is bringing together um, within his cabinet, or even having a cabinet. That was that was his uh, idea to a great extent. Uh, but bringing together these uh, uh, incredibly talented uh, folks, but they didn't always uh, see eye to eye. And and the Hamilton uh, feud with Thomas Jefferson that occurs within the first term that leads to Jefferson leaving leaving the administration eventually. I think that's really where we can see the beginnings of of the development of political parties that you were alluding to. Uh, and again, the, the issues that become really relevant are about centralization of power. And Jefferson takes great issue uh, with Hamilton's very aggressive moves to uh, aggrandize power for this new federal government. And for the next uh, seven years after he leaves the Washington administration, he is uh, pretty much uh, making this uh, the major issue of his political life, uh, and it leads to his uh, election as president. Great, thanks, Gotham. And and what 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 were those dividing lines? Was it really around the notion of the centralization of power? Who keeps it, holds it? Is it the the balance between the president and the Congress? Um, you know, we had talked earlier about the judiciary was being formed from whole cloth. Um, you know, they were part of the checks and balances, but how, how strong were they early on? Were, were they a factor in this debate, or was it largely between, uh, you know, the president and, and Congress? To me, one of the fascinating parts of, of this time period is that a great deal of things are just up for grabs. The answers are, are clear to us now because they've occurred and, and we look at them as precedent. But at the time, things were uh, very much unknown. And so when Hamilton says that the federal government should be able to uh, create a bank in order to pay off its debts, uh, Jefferson says, well, where does it say that in the Constitution? Uh, and this is the recurring struggle over whether or not uh, this federal government is going to have the capacity to uh, flexibly grow to accommodate problems that are occurring or whether the uh, original text of the Constitution is going to constrain its growth and leave these developmental issues to the states. Uh, to me, that's if, if you have to boil it down to one major issue, that is the dividing line uh, between what what becomes Jefferson's uh, party and and the Federalist Party that that Washington is is the leader of. Uh, that is the central issue. You know, I mean, I the constitutional questions uh, were were. You know, important, and they loomed really, really large. Uh, but I mean, there was there was also a lot of angst about sort of the the policy uh, questions involved. So maybe sort of one level down uh, from constitutional questions uh, was was also about you know what sort of what sort of republic was this going to be? Was this going to be you know an agricultural sort of commodities producing republic? 
And would the government be a strong advocate for those parts, those constituencies within the republic? Uh, or was this going to be a more commercial, financial, manufacturing-oriented country, place? Um, and was the government going to be primarily responsive uh, to those to those issues, to those policy interests, um, and and uh, you know, there's there's also a, a second part, very closely related part of that question over the divisions, the party differences, which is the um, you know America's place in the international or Atlantic world and the competition between um, <clears throat> Great Britain and France. Uh, and the wars of the French Revolution. So there's that sort of other uh, other dimension to this is that the wars of the French Revolution are playing out. You know, th- that's the big theater, right? That's the big deal that's going on. Uh, and, and what Americans are arguing about is a little bit of a sideshow and kind of related to that. Uh, and so, yes, there's sort of Anglophiles and Franklophiles on one side, uh, you know, the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians and sort of a more monarchical, centralized government versus a more diffuse republic. Uh, but but there's also sort of, uh, you know, re- whose side you're on, Britain or France, the Francophiles or the Anglophiles, the monarchists or the republicans, uh, also depends on on uh, a lot on where, where your interests lie. Uh, you know, are, should the government be promoting uh, northeastern shipping and finance as it's uh, – uh, you know, with high tariffs to protect uh, protect those goods or a navy, you know, a robust armed forces that's going to cost a lot of money to protect uh, and advance those interests at home and abroad? Uh, or is, is it going to be a little bit more hands-off and let, um, and let America's productivity, agricultural, commercial productivity, uh, speak for itself and, and cut a path for the new republic? Uh, in the world, in the Atlantic world, and in, in, in the larger world, um, you know, and, and a lot of that plays out uh, around the centralized power question versus the diffuse republic question. And Zach, I want to bring you in because part of what an additional dynamic that's going on is the country is expanding while we're thinking about all of these issues, and you know, the founders or you know, residents of the thirteen original colonies, but. We start getting inland. We start, you know, crossing crossing rivers and, and crossing mountains. And, you know, as as President Lincoln, you know, was growing up in in, in Illinois and in, in the central part of the country, you know, what was the view from someone out there who and and into all of this debate? How did sure. that change the dynamic? Well, the thing about Lincoln is that even though he was born in Kentucky, grew up a little bit in Indiana, then settled in Illinois, and all of that was very rural back then. He, he still envisioned a strong central government that would support what was back then called internal improvements. Today, we might think of it as infrastructure. So this is bridges, trains, uh, before trains, steamboats, and really this Whiggish idea, you know, after the Whig party, which became kind of the, to some degree, kind of the descendants of the Federalist Party. It's not really a one-to-one, but similar in opposition to the Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party, the sense that the government is there to provide services for the people in terms of kind of building the economy. And, of course, in the Western states, they're going to need the, this development of railroads, of, of, of actual roads, too, as well as the rivers. So Lincoln's always kind of committed to this idea of kind of economic opportunity stimulated by the government. Um, and, you know, eventually the Whig Party kind of falls apart over the issue of slavery, which is, of course, the huge, you know, issue here under all these d- debates. You know, there are kind of it's kind of the, the elephant in the room, so to speak, that everyone kind of puts, pushes off to the side. Um, and eventually, Lincoln, you know, he's he always was opposed to slavery morally. It was more the issues of the legality of acting uh, against slavery, which is protected in the Constitution. Um, kind of obliquely, slavery is not mentioned explicitly in the Constitution per se, but um, just this idea of you know, Western lands as economic engine and opportunity is going to be free. Is going to be you know. Slave, and then eventually that becomes a huge issue in the 1850s. Well, it sounds like this economic, you know, this this path that was taken with with uh, fostering broader economic opportunity may have been the path that dealt with the situation that Dana was describing. Where does the government put its money? Who does it serve? If you know, everybody uses a road, everyone uses a canal. 
um, uh, cause you got to move people, goods, whatever. Um, but, but then again, these dynamics that were bubbling under the surface, um, you know, eventually kind of explode back onto the scene. Uh, was that, was this issue of slavery just, they just couldn't figure it out during Washington's time and in the constitutional congresses, they, they, there was just no consensus. So they figured we've got enough other problems. Um, and, and then it, it, it bubbles up again. Um, well, I mean, sl- slavery was sort of uh, one issue among many, I think, in the early years of the Republic, uh, and it was a big one, uh, as we know from our history of the Constitutional Convention, you know, one of the big compromises, uh, the three-fifths compromises, uh, is about uh, about the slavery question, uh, but, but um, you know, it, it, it took a few years for it to become the biggest overriding political issue of, of the uh, of the republic, um, and I think internal improvements uh, is also it, it's one of those issues that that comes up a lot. Uh, it, probably after slavery, it is the most like frequently revisited issue by mm-hmm. Congress. Um, I don't know, uh, but you know, certainly not as high profile, and uh, and as we know, not nearly as uh, fractious as the slavery question becomes. And at some point, the two issues become hard to uh, pick apart um, when when South Carolina tries to secede almost uh, the first time um, when Andrew Jackson is president. Uh, the stated reason is because of tariffs, uh, the so-called tariff of abomination. But um, historians pretty widely agree that they're really thinking about what's going to happen to slavery um, if the federal government has the capability to end slavery, possibly. Uh, and so by that point forward, uh, 1830s forward, really, you see uh, tariff is still very important. These internal improvements issues are really important, but uh, the national debate uh, between sections of the country is going to be chiefly about what to do uh, about slavery. And to kind of jump ahead just a little bit, um, you know, when it comes to the, what caused the actual civil war in the 1860s, every now and then you hear certain people say like, oh, it was like tariffs or economic issues. It wasn't slavery. And to that, you know, to the earlier point, like it's all based on slavery. At the end of the day, tariffs, economic issues, states' rights, it all comes back to that slave issue question. And so, you know, starting with the 1830s, if, if not sooner, you know, this issue of any time economic issues come to, you know, discussion – Slavery is always a factor to some degree, even if it's not explicit. Um, it's always there beneath the surface. Um, you know, one of the the early constitutional questions was represents, representation, right? This is the other big compromise from the Constitutional Convention was representation for the states in Congress. And so uh, we know that there's a great compromise where, where – or so-called great where – where each state gets equal representation in the Senate – and at the time, it was thought of much more as a small state, large state kind of question. Uh, later on, I think it transitions to more of a states um, states with aligned policies kind of question. Uh, and of course, as we get into the the uh, later the 1830s and 40s, it, you know that becomes a a slave state versus free state representation in Congress question. Uh, so, uh, you know that uh, they did perhaps did not know it at the time that they were sort of baking that competition into the cake early on, uh, but uh, it certainly becomes sort of the defining feature of American politics as the century advances. And I want to pick back up on that theme as we enter our last segment and, and really look at that, that period of the 1830s or so into the Civil War and looking at, at, at President Lincoln's kind of political career that's that kind of bridges this this broad debate that that it, at some point you know tears our country apart and then he he helps bring bring that back together. Uh, we're going to enter our our last commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, fifteen hundred AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We're in the last segment of our program uh, with three historians, Dr. Gotham Rao, Dr. Dana Stefanelli, and Zach Klitzman talking about uh, the, the presidents um, in, in the first hundred years of our, our country or so. And um, as we're entering this last segment, we're, we're, we're bridging past the founders and, and into the, the period of time leading up to, to the Civil War and, and the presidency of, of President Lincoln and um, Zach uh, from President Lincoln's College, I wanted to go to you to talk a little bit more about kind of Lincoln's perspective on on the founders and kind of what what was going on in in his political career as as we got to the the, the point of time that led to, to his presidency ultimately in the Civil War. Sure. Um, so, so the thing about Lincoln is he was uh, one of the first presidents born in, in the 19th century, and so he's definitely the generation after the founders. Um, as he's coming into you know adulthood, the last of the founders are dying off. James Madison was one of the last uh, signers of the Constitution who died in the 1830s. And in 1838, Lincoln gave one of his first public speeches in, in Springfield, Illinois. It's called the Lyceum Address. And in it, he talked a lot about this legacy that the founders had left for the country. Um, and he, he described the founders as a forest of oaks. And you know they bequeathed the legacy of, you know, by hardy, brave, patriotic ancestors of these temples of these real institutions of liberty and democracy and freedom. And he really came back to the Declaration of Independence throughout his career, both early on in that 1830s period, but even through his presidency. He really viewed this document, the, the Declaration, as this kind of beacon of hope for the nation. Um, kind of the, uh, An apple of gold was one of the quotes he used, uh, quoting the Bible and describing it. And and you know, he, he really did admire Jefferson. He, he certainly realized some of the flaws Jefferson had, but he really viewed this document in, in the Constitution, of course. You know, he, ever, he always was a lawyer, so it's all about those legal documents. But he really did view them as this kind of um, through line through the first you know, 80-plus years of American history. Um, in a speech during the 1858 campaign against um, Stephen Douglas for the Senate, he described the um, declaration as um, the electric cord that links patriotic hearts. And he actually was talking a little bit about the concept of foreigners coming to America and immigration and how the rights of the Declaration still apply to them as much as it applied to the founding generation. And so he really did view the, these central documents from the founding generation as kind of the basis of the Union. And, and so then when the Civil War you know, breaks out, he really goes back to these documents as you know reasons why the Union should stay together, not kind of divide apart, okay, we'll have a slave version, we'll have a you know, free version of America. No, we need one solid union together. Thanks, and I'd be interested, Gotham or, or Dana, kind of as, as you've looked at, you know, the role of the presidency over time, how, how did uh, where Lincoln landed uh, uh, jive with, with what's just been described? I mean, it, it seems like a natural progression, and again, maybe we can benefit from, you know, 2020 vision, but... Uh, is how did that all shake out? Well, I think the the status of the founding documents, uh, Declaration, Constitution, in this time period uh, is a very interesting question because, uh, to some extent, up until maybe the Jackson presidency, uh, you still get the sense that the, the institution is not uh, not comfortable in its own skin. Whereas by the time we get to Lincoln. Um, there is sort of reverential looking back um, at at this history. There are histories that are going to come out of the time period, which are really glorifying where the country comes from uh, and what the role of the founders were. So I think, in, to some extent, Lincoln's moment there uh, against Douglas and and later on, I mean, he's known for his speech writing, obviously. Um, it does indicate a kind of maturity of. Uh, the nation state and of of the presidency itself, uh, which certainly didn't exist uh, just thirty or forty years previous. 
time needed to mature, kind of the, the nationalist instincts that defined what the country felt about itself and its own origin story. And it's a bit ironic, of course, because it's on the cusp of, of the, the Union uh, coming apart um, at the moment where Lincoln is asserting that kind of uh, maturity. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, Lincoln also, as a, as a uh, strategist, uh, is, is worth, uh, worth noting here because uh, he's very careful in his uh, – as the Civil War is about to start – He's very careful to uh, not recognize the Confederacy as a uh, as a nation. So it's this is not for him uh, a, a war between nations, but rather uh, a at least in legal theory um, an enormous police action to get citizens who are out of line back into line. Uh, and so that that he's never going to give legitimacy to some to a group that's trying to tear apart the Union. Absolutely. I mean, he, he almost exclusively refers to it as like the rebellion or the rebellious states. He never, you know, really defers to the legitimacy of someone like Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. It really is that sense that, no, this is the union and we are putting it back together. Yeah, I mean, not to make it all about Washington, but um, <laughs> it is his know, birthday after all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I mean, you know, the, uh, there, there are there were some lessons perhaps for. for that Lincoln took from Washington uh, and his presidency. You know, when uh, when Washington started out as commander-in-chief during the Revolution, he was very deferential to Congress, uh, and he continued to be throughout throughout the war. Uh, but but he had also had some doubts along the way about deferring to Congress. And I think that experience of the Revolution, the Confederation years, uh, emphasized for him that perhaps – it is not wise to always be deferential to Congress and other um, other institutions, governmental institutions, including the states and their governments. Uh, but you know, the most important thing that you can do uh, as a leader uh, is is to take the initiative and to take action. And I, I feel like, uh, without having a, a quote or anything, <laughs> we can quote or anything to back it up. That that was certainly a lesson that. Uh, Lincoln took to heart, right? Like when there is a crisis, when there is a war going on, uh, when you don't know where everyone's loyalties lie or where they will be in the near future, then it is incumbent upon you to to take swift and decisive action on those things that you you can do that with, right? That you can constitutionally in those areas where you can um, where your responsibilities, primary responsibilities, lay. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, perhaps the best example of that is the Emancipation Proclamation, which uh, Lincoln issued while while living at the uh, at the cottage where I work. And, you know, it wasn't passed by Congress. It wasn't, you know, an official piece of legislation. It was a wartime, you know, presidential proclamation. It only freed slaves in areas that were in rebellion. Again, not the Confederacy, but in rebellion, because theoretically the president has jurisdiction in in those in those areas in, in times of rebellion, and therefore, you know, he he knew that it was only a temporary solution. He knew that there needed to be a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery. And towards the end of his um, uh, first term, uh, but really in 1865 in January and, and and earlier too, he really pushed for this amendment, which which passed Congress um, in January uh, 1865 as as depicted in the movie Lincoln. Um, unfortunately, he was assassinated before it was ratified later that December, but but he knew that he he had to take the initiative in 1862. Um, it took him a while to kind of come around, but he he realized that summer that this is this is the way the war was shaping up, and he took that decisive action. You know, per, perhaps using Washington's example to some degree, uh, maybe not literally on the issue of slavery, but certainly in in, in terms of strong leadership and strategic thinking. And then he he knew he, at, again he's the lawyer. He knows legally. If a new president comes aboard, maybe he'll overturn the proclamation. So towards the end, he did push for that constitutional amendment. It is interesting how we, uh, you know, Lincoln's legacy uh, because of of the Civil War, uh, that some of the uh, decisions that were made perhaps in haste about uh, the use of the military uh, to uh, to police people, uh, the suspension of habeas corpus, these are viewed as kind of footnotes uh, in the Lincoln story, whereas if you think back to John Adams, 
mm-hmm. who, uh, uh, you know, Alien Sedition Acts, and, and um, that's what he's remembered for, right, chiefly uh, for uh, uh, trampling upon civil liberties. So it's just a funny thing how history works. The, the, the victory uh, of Lincoln in the war uh, overshadows any, any sort of, uh, of those issues. And specifically, his assassination really kind of just changes the whole tenure or, um, of his presidency, you know, in a way that he almost becomes this kind of like second to Washington, an American saint. And there's all these images from the time of him kind of ascending to heaven with Washington happily greeting him. And if he hadn't been assassinated, who knows what, you know, how, how we would view that or how people at the time would have viewed Lincoln. You know, there's this one counterfactual novel that presupposes that Lincoln survives the assassination and then he's impeached, not Andrew Johnson. So, that, you know, obviously it's fiction, but kind of an example. We, we don't know what, you know, his legacy would have been. Maybe he would have been charged on the, you know, habeas corpus suspension, that kind of stuff. Great. Um, this has been so fascinating. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left. Any concluding thoughts or ways to wrap this up? Um uh, briefly from each of you, you know, I think this was a really interesting conversation about, you know, the, the first 80, 100 years of, of, our, of our nation's kind of official history as, 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 a, as a nation state. Um, but again, as we mentioned throughout, you know, these, these issues of the power of the presidency and, and, and kind of how, how we work out issues in our country um, are ever present. Um, um, let's, uh, let's just go down the line real quick. Gotham, any, any final thoughts? Uh, well, this is this is great fun. So thanks for having me. Uh, I think uh, it's fascinating to me. Every now and then, you you open up a newspaper and you see an op-ed about uh, the you know the death of Americans' interest in history, and um, I, I'm always puzzled by that because anyone who goes to an airport and to a bookstore, I mean, there's just dozens of books about exactly the stuff we've been talking about here, um, and uh, it's quite heartening to me that that interest, uh, particularly in, in some of the issues we've been talking about that interest uh, endures really and um, I think you know the the greater um, the extent to which uh, we can we can keep these stories uh, and and histories rather um, germane to uh, our own experiences today is is uh, uh, of great civic importance so um, yeah I think it's it's a it's a good very good aspect to uh, President's Day thank you Gotham Zach? Yeah, I, I would only say that the thing about the presidents that really always strikes me is just reading their words and how they really felt about their legacy or their, you know, their times, their policies. Obviously, they're always kind of like, you know, angling here and there for certain things. But going back to what they literally said, I think is always an important thing, whether it's in these in books at historic sites like President Lincoln's Cottage or Mount Vernon, of course, in the Washington Papers. Um, but but really going back to that sense of you know how they view themselves in their times and really the context there you know sometimes modern history you we we think we know like all these myths and and and, stu- and you know specific anecdotes of presidents but really looking at their own own words and how they they felt on the issues I think is always an important element to keep in mind. Thank you, Zach. Yeah. yeah well, I'll try and follow the theme and make a plea for people to ed- educate. <laughs> History education and, and, and the importance of it, uh, certainly. Um, you know, I, I mean, in, in Washington and Lincoln, you have uh, two people. Uh, I guess technically Washington wasn't president at the time, but t- two people who sort of presided over civil wars in their own countries. Or, uh, you know, when Americans were deeply divided over the most critical issues of the day. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, I read... I read the newspapers, uh, as they say online. Usually, uh, you know this. This is this is a uh, this is something that people are justifiably pre- preoccupied with uh, in our in our own time, uh, and so there are lessons, good and bad, I think, to be found uh, with with all of these early presidents, and especially Lincoln and Washington, in that area. Fabulous. Well, uh, for our listeners, uh, I'd like to thank again Dr. Dana Stefanelli from the papers of George Washington at the Washington Library at Mount Vernon. Zach Klitzman with the President Lincoln's College American University. Uh, please check them out. Check out their works and the organizations they're uh, working with. Uh, the, there's lots more to learn and to hear. Uh, this has been Fed Talk on Federal News Network, brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.